Hey everybody, this is your one of your hosts, Matt. I just want to let you know that the episode that you're about to hear has the crappiest audio in the history of audio. Um, we do apologize for that. We're having a little bit of uh, issues with Skype at the moment, along with a new microphone set up on my end and some odd things on Vince's end. The discussion here is really good if you can get through the crappy audio. We've tried to clean it up a little bit, but um, yeah, and there's not much we could have done. Um, we're going to go ahead and put it out. Listen to it if you can. If not, uh, we have plenty of other episodes that are way better produced than this one. Uh, again, here's the episode. Welcome to the Three Cast. I'm your host Matthew Weber. I'm joined by Vincent Hui. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, Ricky is off this week. He had a uh, death in the family, so he's dealing with that. Uh, so this is the Three Cast. We review things. We um, usually movies, TV shows, every once in a while, comic book. Uh, uh, usually, we just we usually choose whatever you know kind of suits our fancy, whatever we want to want to watch. Uh, and at the end of the last episode, Vince, you talked about a movie called The Untouchables, and that's what you chose. So why don't you uh, tell us what the, Untou- and the Untouchables is about? Well, I thought this was good to throw you on a couple levels, Matt. So the first one is, of course, we were – the reason why this part of the whole conversation is because, as some listeners might know, we've been talking about Bond movies. I mean, slowly but surely, maybe in a decade, we'll get through a lot of Bond movies. Um, but the, the Bond movies are something that we've been looking at and just like – saying in, in, in passing that there's like, you know, dated stuff, so it's like you know, the special effects, the music, the kind of treatment of women and minorities and stuff are always a problem. But I think this was this whole entire choice of the Untouchables was coming about from a discussion that you we had earlier, which was, hey, has John Connery actually been in a good movie? Or does he actually really do good, good, any good acting? Well, today we're going to be seeing The Untouchables, which happens to be the one only movie that Sean Connery, I believe, won an Oscar for supporting actor playing that Irish or Scotsman. I don't even know. No, it wasn't. It was Scottish, but I think he was supposed to be Irish. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like starts fighting with the other Irish guy, and then you have the Irish guy fighting with the Scots guy. It's just like, yeah, that's not the same accent. He's realized, wait, he's not Irish. Um, so anyway, uh, so so that's one part where we're like, okay, let's talk about the bomb. We talk about a decent um, movie that um, you know would, would kind of talk about uh, Sean Connery's acting skills. And the other thing that I thought was really good was because, of course, Matt, we all know that you're a bit of an American history buff. So you know, there's obviously a lot of artistic license that's taken on in historic dramas. We know that all the time. It's fictionalized mm-hmm. as you read, you know retellings of, of history um but I, I think that it's a fun movie the untouchables happens during the um kind of uh 1930s where it's pretty much uh, prohibition has been uh, underway in america and um of course um at that point in time uh the the kind of crime syndicates specifically in chicago um, we're bootlegging a lot of alcohol into America, okay? And uh, as part of the 
way to stop this and to kind of stop that kind of profiting off of uh, illicit activity, uh, the feds actually get involved. And the feds actually appoint this kind of a non-Chicago uh, cop, um, basically it's for the feds, uh, named Elliot Ness. And he basically, um, because all the cops are corrupt, they're under the kind of pay of uh, Al Capone, played by uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, is charged with leading the Untouchables, this this little uh, super group. It's like the Avengers of the 1930s, right? Of um, people with various skills, uh, whether it's street smarts or accounting <laughs> um, or sharpshooting. Um, you got these kind of basic skills that are there uh, for an elite group. Um, and, and it's a fictionalized account, of course. Um, but uh, he basically is, as the movie would put it, uh, he's responsible for making sure he takes down Al Capone. So throughout the movie, we see instances where he's trying to take, uh, Andy Ness is trying to take down Al Capone, um, specifically hitting his, um, you know, the alcohol racket. But then it turns out that the, the crux of the, the, the way to put him in jail is to, of course, bust him on, as we all know, Al Capone gets busted for not, you know, murder, not for, like, you know, uh, extortion or anything. He gets busted for tax evasion, right? So uh, because of that tax evasion thing, it's this pervasive thing that kind of peppers through the entire uh, storyline. Eventually, uh, because he's, it, it almost seems like not only is Elliot Ness's group untouchable, but of course, you know, the mob is kind of untouchable. And it's not until the very last minute in the movie where basically, even when the, uh, you know, the, the, the prosecutor has got Al Capone dead to rights because, you know, he's pretty much got the ledger. They've kind of secured the bookie, or sorry, the bookkeeper for Al Capone. Um, at the end of the day, it's still kind of, you know, Al Capone's kind of cocky because he feels that he's got even the judge under uh, his pay. But, of course, they switch out the juries, and there, thereby, of course, uh, Al Capone is put in jail. Now, I've skirted over a bunch of issues, but... I want to talk back about some of our friend um, Sean Connery's acting. So Sean Connery plays the beat cop who's never been um, uh, kind of promoted because he's been honest. He's never been taken on the he's never been on the take from the mafia. So as a result, he's always been kept down as the beat cop. And he's the streetwise kind of uh, good-hearted but kind of rough on the outside kind of guy. Um, I thought that um, he was he was portrayed as a Irish person. Was it like seems like Malone? Or? I don't know why they didn't just make him Scottish. I mean, America has Scottish immigrants. I mean, they could have just made him Scottish. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure how much the like. I knew that you know, when, when American immigrants, it was like the Italians, then the Irish, then like the Italians, right? So there was always like specific focus on on certain groups. I don't know if there was ever a persecution of the Scots. Um, oh. it, it just, I mean, because I mean, around that time, obviously, the Irish and the the um, Italians were the big groups coming here. But I mean, people were coming here from all over the place. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they could have just made him Scottish because he, this, I mean, he was good in this movie, but he can't do a different accent to save his life. We've complained about it before. <laughs> He just, he just can't. And, and it, 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 and that fight scene with the Irish guy who did an Irish accent, like, they should, they should have just cut that part out because it just made his accent stand out even more. It was really weird. Yeah, but, but I thought it was interesting though because, uh, like, you know, like, we know that historic retellings of movies tend, movies tends to be very, very, uh, you know, hit and miss with facts, and, and I think, yes, there was an Elliot Ness, and believe it or not, yes, there was, I, I, it took me a second or two to realize this, uh, that there really was a Malone character, there was, but, but apparently they never actually met, uh, apparently, um, Elliot Ness, I, this is something that struck me, 
Elliot Ness is like all of 27 years old in reality when he starts. Yeah, yeah he died in his 50s, so he he died very young. Um, he was also not. I, this movie portrayed him as uh, a loving family man, which he was not. Uh, he had three wives. Um, mm. He also didn't have a daughter. He had an adopted son. So um, in this movie, he had two children. So that, that, they pulled that completely out of their asses. But um, I, I think I know why, though, because I think that they were trying to really play up the untouchable thing, where it's like, that's why we can make you like, okay, make sure that whoever I get have no kids, have no girlfriends, have no wives, right? Because it was all about, like, look, it's going into bad stuff, and we know that family, and I think they make that point when it's like he has to evacuate his wife, or at least his, you know, fictionalized wife and daughter, uh, from his house, because it's like, look, they can get, the mob can get you and your family, and so like, good people will do bad things, not because they're fundamentally bad, but because it's at the risk of, say, uh, their, their family getting, dept- you know, hurt. I, I think that that's one thing that's kind of uh, clear, at least to me, is that not every cop was on the take because they just wanted money, but also because there was, like, this intimidation, right? So it's not like anyone in Chicago was a scumbag. Everyone in Chicago had to do, a lot of people had to do bad stuff in, the, in that era, was because there was also comes intimidation because of the mob, right? So, and then cops as well, uh, just as uh, kind of suspect of that. So, I, I thought that was interesting, but just going back to um, the whole issue of Sean Connery, I mean, like, he won a supporting actor for, role for this, uh, Oscar for this, and you know what? I, I think that you got to take it with a grain of salt. Like, honestly, Matt, you, you've watched enough 80s movies to know that the acting and the kind of production value of 80s movies versus what we see now is really different, right? Um, and, and you're not going to see, like, Citizen Kane kind of stuff, but you're also not going to see stuff that, you know, typically you'd find in today's kind of cinema, right? Um, so I, I think that Sean Connery's kind of uh, gritty kind of character, you know, was, was a pretty good send-off in, in, in the 80s of, like, the kind of, uh, you know, bad cop, good heart kind of thing. Um, I think that uh, there were some scenes in the movie where I was, like, surprised, like, Come on, that is a pretty good scene when he kills the dead guy. Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? And mm-hmm. The American boy takes the dead body and, and like, to intimidate the other guy that's being interrogated, he takes the dead body of another um, a bad guy and then, like, threatens him and then shoots him in the head to make the other guy that's about to be interrogated spill, right? So it, it's just kind of that, like, and that's pretty violent stuff. Like, I mean, in the 80s, you got to understand, bear in mind, there's some rules that even in the 80s they set, and even in the 90s and the 200s, and, and current day, you still do. Like, you never see kids get hurt in movies, right? You never see, like, um, it, it's like, for some reason, um, you know, full-on frontal nudity was never available. And I would say, even in the 80s, you would say it's the similar ground rules where you'd never show explicit gore in detail, um, except, unless you were in, like, a horror movie. But, you know, when whether it's... You know, the Al Capone taking them back to the guy's head and then seeing the blood just kind of spew out of his head, or like when they shoot the guy in the head and then like his brains fly out on the back of the wall, or blowing up the little girl. Sorry. Blowing up the little girl in the yeah yeah. Even blowing up the little girl, they don't show the little girl getting blown up. They just show the building blowing up. So so they still they still adhere to the 1980s kind of Stranger Things kind of rules of cinema. Um, but I think that the the whole issue of having shot just like you know pulling out all the guns and doing all that stuff um that, that that was just kind of fun to see and i mean i i can understand why people liked his kind of mentor role uh you gotta keep in mind this is coming up like, i'm not sure which came first this or uh indiana jones 
right? Because uh, remember, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out about the same time, so it was the kind of renaissance of Sean Connery. Because remember, at this point, Sean Connery had retired from James Bond for a while, done a couple of random movies, but, you know, it was kind of Roger Moore's James Bond, right? And so in the 80s, you kind of saw, you know, there was a lot of hit and miss stuff with Sean Connery. And it wasn't until he starts getting his stride with uh, stuff like uh, this, Untouchables, and, and, and certainly, um, you know, his, his other uh, big payout was, of course, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So, so those are two movies that I recall back in the late 80s, early 90s, that really starts putting this guy up, uh, you know, as, as a renaissance or, or like a kind of uh, revitalization of his career. So anyways, I just wanted to see what you thought on this movie, because we were talking about Shankari ad nauseum. And I thought that this was like one movie that he should be say that we should say like he this is an ultimate benchmark of acting. Yeah, uh, this was a good movie, Vince. This was a very good movie. Um, I really enjoy. There's some things that bother me. Some of the acting was. Eh. Well, it's not James Bond level. Like it falls over the. Wait, 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 yeah, it wasn't that bad. It, but a lot. Some of the um, like the action, the like the non-action scenes were pretty good. Um, like Kevin Costner, he can act. Um, uh, Sean Connery, he can act. The, the, even the even like the B-list characters, they were pretty good. Um, mm. They didn't do a very good job of doing any character development for Al Capone. He was just, I mean, he really was a non-entity in this movie for the most part. I mean, he, I mean, for, he, he was in, he was in this movie for maybe maybe a, maybe twenty minutes. I mean. Nope. I, to, a, a grand total, he wasn't in it for very long. He didn't do very much. Uh, of a character development at all, but outside of that, um, I, I don't know about you, Vince, but the the sets in the scene, the the like the, the scene, the like the physical world, they did an excellent job with it. Just the way they shot it, and like the, the, the buildings and the so the, clean, man. I thought it was way too clean. I, I honestly, it looked like to me. I thought I felt a little bit like okay, it's clearly a movie in the 1980s, but set in the 30s because the streets are clean. Like yeah, I, I suppose you, I. I, I could see that, but like like at the beginning, I mean, even though he like he, he had a wife and but he wasn't really a fa- family man. That shot when you first meet his wife, like they did a really good job with that kitchen. Like it was like really that, yeah, was, yeah. I mean, they did a really good job with that stuff. And and the like the, I mean, yes, Chicago turned out it looked really clean. I didn't, I guess I didn't even really notice that. But you know, they did a fairly good job of just kind of making it feel like. Uh, some sometimes uh, these older films have more like a Mel Brooks kind of style where, yeah, they got the old style like Western buildings or whatever, blazing saddles. But then you pull out and you're you're in Hollywood. You know, it kind of feels like yeah. that. Like I would agree with you. It's just that there's there's two scenes in particular that stand out as like kind of like it's very clear to me at least that it was kind of this this farce, right? The first one is that first scene of the first bust where he, I don't know, the, the, the snow file, essentially into the, into the Canadian warehouse, right, with all the written beliefs on, on, on the boxes. I was like, that is the cleanest kind of warehouse to smuggle stuff in that you've ever seen, right? Yeah, and, and they were going through alleys and stuff like that, and, like, the alleys were perfectly, like, pristine, too. I mean, like, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a trash dumpster in sight. Yeah. Uh, I think about it, yeah. Exactly. So, 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 like that, that, but that, that opening scene, maybe it's because it's dark, but even though when you get inside, it was really, really pristine, right? And then to me, the other part that, that I found was kind of iffy was um, the courthouse. Uh, not, the, not, not the actual court scene, but the actual courthouse itself, where, where, like, you know, he gets, he pulls up uh, the assassin guy. Um, I, I, Ivy cover, covered or something? 
Well, it wasn't even that. It was just like the inter- like, the fact is that okay, so they're trying to play up some historic fidelity with the fact that he needs the matches and he smokes inside the building, which kind of has to be used as a plot device, right? So you can see, oh, this is the guy that killed Malone, right? But the fact is that look at the building; it is so clean. And, and yes, it is a court building, but it is so immaculately clean in spite of the fact that at that point in time, you knew that the air would have been filled with smoke, it would have been hazy, it would have been like beams of light going through, because at that point in time, it would have been just like this nasty ass, like, you take it for granted, because uh, okay, you're younger than that, you take it for granted that buildings today have air conditioning, have filtration. People are smoking still. I'm not even sure if you were alive when buildings, a lot of people were smoking them. I, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm in the air where you can smoke on planes, right? So... When we walk into that building, it would have been like you know, it would have been like a nightclub, and because it would have been all dudes and, and press reporters, it would have just been like this kind of gross air, the ground would have been nasty, everything would have been fucked. So I just thought that it was interesting just to, to see those you know those two different scenes where it's like clearly so artificial. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Um, I guess, I, I, yeah, yeah, the other thing that I really enjoy, enjoyed but was kind of off about this movie was the soundtrack. So the soundtrack was actually pretty good, um, mm-hmm. but it didn't really fit the movie. Um, or the, excuse me, it didn't fit the time period because this is the era of jazz, right? I mean, there was no jazz in this movie at all, and jazz was huge in the United States, you know, even around the world, really, in the 1930s. Um, there was just none of that in here. It was really weird. But I have a question for you. So jazz was the problem thing, um, but jazz also, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but jazz was kind of the um, easy access drug of sorts or to, to, to kind of like the gateway drug into the kind of speakeasies and, and all the kind of other stuff that's kind of sketch, right? So I'm not sure if, look, if you look at all the scenes, there's two things. A, there aren't too many scenes where you go into the actual bars, right? You only go at the nightclubs and the echelon where like Al Capone is, right? Like that's highfalutin stuff. So you never go into like the slums of someone actually going to like a speakeasy and drinking, right? The second is that, you know, look at the audience. It was always about, again, it's because they didn't really talk about the black people in the 1930s, but it was all white, right? Like the cops were white, the, uh, the mafia was white, um, everyone's white. So where would you see the jazz percolate given that jazz would have been for the younger group, the hip group, the, you know, the, the, the kind of black uh, population? So we don't. I'm not sure if jazz would have been like the thing to throw in there because it's like, you know, technically, if I'm in a movie today and I was making a biography about me, uh, you know, technically there's rap and there's, you know, dubstep and, and you know, um, all that stuff. But you wouldn't hear that in my movie soundtrack. God damn it, I hope I wouldn't have that. But, you know, I'm talking about like, just because it was around doesn't mean it had to be there, right? Yeah, it just, I didn't, I don't really mean that it had to be like um, prevalent. It's just that there was nothing at all. Um, it just seemed like it, it just kind of felt like it was missing a little bit because I mean they did such a I mean a fairly good job of portraying the time period with that, you know everything else. I mean now that you mentioned the scenes, it weren't quite as good as I had thought it was. Um, also, did you notice how um, uh, cavalier they were with the guns in this movie? Like he, he, at one point, uh, Kevin Costner, Elliot Ness goes in you know, like when he thinks his daughter was in danger, he has like a gun and he's like holding it like to her head when he's hugging her. Um, and then he just wanders around the train station with, like, when they're supposed to be, like, they're at the end where they're, they're catching, trying to catch the bookie or the, the, the bookkeeper. Um, they're trying to be stealth about it, right? <laughs> like, like, they're supposed to be, like, um, 
they don't want to give themselves away. That's the reason why they split up. But he's wandering around with like a, a, a double barreled shotgun. <laughs> like that's not very stealth. That was really weird with the way they treated guns. In this I, mean, I, I don't know how historically accurate that would be because, I mean, you'd think that they'd at least have some. I mean, even in the 1930s, they would have known not to just go waving around guns when you're trying to be, you know, stealth about something. Okay. Well, I mean, like, listen, man, they had some serious lax everything back then. I mean, one of the first of like, there's so many protocols that 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 weren't emerging yet, right? Like, I mean... Well, I mean, the FBI didn't even exist at this point. The FBI didn't, uh, wasn't even created until 1935. So, um, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it's, he, he literally is from the Treasury Department. That's the reason. So, I mean, that's, that's, that, I mean, okay, so, historically, the biggest thing that bothered me, I guess, was the tax evasion thing. So, um, from everything I've read about Al Capone and Al Ines, the, the tax evasion thing really didn't pop up. They like knew about the tax evasion, but that's not what they wanted to be. But that was really it came across as like the absolute last resort, right? It didn't. Yes, it came across as the last resort here, but it, because they pushed it so often early, yeah. like the when they brought the account the accountant guy in, um, he pushed tax evasion like right away. Like you could, like you could see it coming. I mean, everybody knows that they got Al Capone for tax evasion, so they couldn't really make it a surprise ending. Yeah. But the fact that they pushed it so hard so early wasn't really the, at least the way I've read some several books is not the way it really happened. It was it was more um, they tried right up until the last minute trying to get him for you know pretty much anything other than that because they did not want to take him for tax evasion. But they yeah, because basically tax evasion whereas like capital like you kill someone right that that's yeah. That's significant. But then they knew they knew he was sick, um, so they wanted to try to get him to jail before you know he died. So he um, did out though eventually. Like I mean, and let him out of Alcatraz because I've been to Alcatraz several times now, and it, it struck me when I was there because I don't really know all that much about American history. But then it, you know when when I went there, I was like, oh, he didn't die here, and he's like, no, he, he retired. And no, he yeah, got, he, he he served his eleven years, got out and retired to Florida. Yeah, with all of his money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so he did. Like, uh, I can't remember what the he had to have or something. He had like dementia or something. I can't remember what it was. Hey, he had syphilis. Okay, yeah, there we go. But but I thought it was also something his cognitive abilities too. It, it, it was it was whatever STD affects the brain. Okay. Um, I can't I can't. It was like I said it was one it was one of the STDs that makes you go crazy. Okay. Um, okay. So so the thing is that he he so you're saying about the issue with the. Uh, the, the kind of tax evasion, but you know what's interesting? Because I, I actually did some homework for this one. Um, I didn't know, and and this is why it seems really strange to me because it's strange in the fiction where his brother earlier, like a couple of years before, got busted for tax evasion because his brother, Al Capone's brother, was you know complicit with a lot of illicit activity in, in the Chicago gangland in his own right, and he basically. Could have seen this a mile. Like, come on, man! Your brother gets busted in. Like, at least you couldn't say, "Look, I'm gonna get myself some security to make sure this doesn't happen." Not, "Hey, I'm gonna make sure I consolidate all this information into one bookie and then call it a day." I, I think that that was the kind of weird thing. Was like, dude, how much hubris or, or like, you know, stupidity do you have to make that happen, right? Well, a lot of historians, I mean, they don't know. Obviously, they don't know for sure, but they think because at that time he already had that disease. So they think that was kind of affecting his mind a bit there towards the end. Because they, they didn't obviously portray that at all here in the, in the film. But like I said, they did no character um, character development of uh, Al Capone in this movie at all. But um, th- there's a lot of historians that think that 
um, not only was his personality kind of portraying him because he uh, he was very I mean I mean obviously he was egotistical right he thought he was mm-hmm. you know, above everything so he didn't I think that's probably part of what played into it but they also posit that you know he he just probably didn't think of it because at that point he was already he was already sick um, I, I personally I'm I don't know how they would ever even you know because the thing the things that I, there's this book by um, Oh God, I can't remember what his some historian from Chicago. Um, <laughs> right, uh, very specific. Um, but anyways, it's, it's a very big book. Um, but anyways, he he talks about how uh, his brother and and Al Capone didn't really have a, the, the greatest of relationships throughout their entire lives. So they were closer towards the end than they were to the middle because when. Al Capone, because Al Capone started in New York City, right? So before he moved to Chicago, they were close. Then after they were born and stuff like that, and then Ralph, or I think his name is Ralph, he like went to like Iowa to become a gangster or something. It was really weird. And then they like reunited in in um, in Chicago. So it's possible that their relationship wasn't to the point where he even maybe he wasn't even paying attention. Who knows? But then, okay, so let's, let's go through a couple of other things about the, the fun historic uh, stuff about this. So so from your perspective, you're talking about like how the such were nice and stuff, but I mean, there are a lot of fancies, uh, fights of fancy with, with the kind of storyline. We, we talked already about like how uh, Malone was never around with uh, Elliot Ness. We talked about how, you know, um, th- there was there were some plot points that might not necessarily make sense. But I mean, what do you think from uh, a kind of historian standpoint, like, at least it gets the message across, or it's the wrong message. Because, you know, as, as I said, I, I was doing some homework, and, you know, as, as you described, Elliot Ness was kind of, a, kind of, you know, had multiple wives, right? Didn't even have a kid. So they, they kind of portray it a certain way. But um, do you think from, like, a general sense of, uh, say, Al Capone being taken down by Elliot Ness, that big kind of message, does, does that really resonate? People really uh, there are people that like you know, they're not to name buildings after Elliot Ness and stuff, and then, and then basically there's like a group in America that's like, nope, not name stuff after Elliot Ness uh, because he didn't do all that much. And you're like, really? Um, so, uh, what, what's your what's your read on this, Mr. American? Uh, so, the, the most of the things that people know about Elliot Ness come from movies and novels. They're not actually true. Um, after Al Capone was put in prison, Al, uh, Elliot Ness moved on to. Uh, he, he went to the like the alcohol tax division because like right after this prohibition was re- repealed, so alcohol came back, so he could no longer bust people for selling alcohol. So he went to like the he stayed in the tre- treasury department. He didn't start working for for like like there's um kind of was it was it that John Dillinger movie with um, Johnny Depp that had I think that had Elliot Ness in it. Like he wasn't even part of that story. Oh um, okay. Yeah, like like after he, he put. Al Capone away. He stopped going after gangsters completely. Um, he went to the, t- the he started collecting taxes on alcohol, and then mm-hmm. he ran for mayor of Cleveland. Um, yeah. yeah. And he got married a couple times. So um, I think that the portrayal I I think that the portrayal of Elliot Ness in, in these types of stories is just because they need somebody they need a good guy right they need a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, like. They didn't even do. I mean, they, in this movie, the the Untouchables was really four people. It was the Malone, the accountant, uh, Ness, and yeah. um, the sharpshooter guy. Um, yeah. Right. In in they the Untouchables did exist. They just had um, six people to start out with, and then they moved up to ten. And I felt 
one of the things that they could have done a lot better was, um, like a lot more. I mean, raids and stuff. I mean, it was it was really weird that the raid that they chose to cover the most was the one where they got you know the the on horseback and went to the wild wild west or whatever. Which was, yeah. by the way, it wasn't the wild wild west. It was in Canada. I mean, it was like that was the like it looked like it was like the border between. You, you expected some American Indians or something to come well, around and. But it was happening because I was like, so wait, where is this happening? Because I, I, don't, I don't know where exactly this happened unless it happens like in like way out west. It was like you know, you like if this is like across this across the river or across from like you know the the, the, the Michigan. I mean, you know that we would have cops, right? Like, I'm just, <laughs> like, so they were either making, so they were either trying to make a play on the popularity of popularity of western movies or they were making fun of canadians because of the mounted police that's I mean, those are the only two options because it's really weird because i'm pretty sure they were trying to say that 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 alcohol was coming in from the from canada across the detroit river yeah yeah um okay, so first of all where was detroit i mean this was like a, a field or something i mean it was like there was like a, a cliff there and it was. I mean, was that supposed to be the 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 the, the bridge there in Detroit? Because I mean, yeah, that, that's not how Detroit did exist in the 1930s. I mean, it's really weird. I was like, that's that's that is the raid that they decided to to focus on the most. I mean, and that took up a good I don't know 20 25 minutes. I mean, the him killing the dead guy was really cool. That kind of redeemed the scene. But it just felt really weird that in the middle of this movie it became a western for like you know twenty minutes. Yeah, I think I think it, it did a bunch of things. I think there was a certain levity. Uh, I'll admit, like when you have an accountant who's never picked up a gun, just suddenly like go, you know, sharp shooting shotgun. You almost expected him to go yippee kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, but it sounded funny that like you know he's, he's, he's kind of doing that stuff. So my my take is the following on this. Um, I think in the, in the movie, they just want to break from, like, your typical Chicago gangland movies where it's always like, yeah, you see, here, I'm going to kill him, yeah? Like, that, that kind of thing. Like, I think they want to break that kind of thing. De Palma, uh, the director, probably want to step out of that because, I mean, if you, if you do that, too, remember, we're still in the heyday of the Godfather movies, right? Remember, so, so the Godfather movies, Goodfather, all these movies are coming out, and th- this is, like, kind of like, okay, how do we break away from it so that we kind of liven it up? Because there's only so much of, like, gangland Chicago that you can show. Um, I also think that, it, it, as I said before, it, it really needed to break the pace, um, you know, because he it, it really wants to reinforce the fact that it wasn't just locally that he was busting Capone, but he was cutting off, like, the supply, uh, which I think was really important because then that would really make more for a dramatic arc where it's like Al Capone's not just ticked off that he's like a wasp in his, in his bonnet kind of thing. It, it's actually... Nothing mess is messing up his entire supply chain, right? So I see that as kind of useful too, right? To just show it that way. It makes the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, look like they're idiots when they kind of uh, do a preemptive strike thing. Well, I, I, yeah, I, it, it was weird. I mean, the whole the whole scene was. I, I can just mention just one little observation. Um, now that now that I'm thinking about this, did you notice that basically the on the Untouchables, it's only the Untouchables that drink that end up dying. Did you notice that? Like, the little accountant guy, he just takes a little swig from the, the whole, like, the, the, the yeah. barrel. And then, and then you, you see um, Malone, Malone, yeah. Malone, yeah, Malone um, have a good drink there at the end, yeah. Yeah. That so, is interesting. 
Yeah, so I thought that was interesting because it's like it's like the whole movie rules, right? Like, again, kind of like 80s tropes, where it's like if kids have sex, they're gonna die, right? Like I'm talking about. So uh, you know, teens are bullies, they're gonna die, right? So in, in this movie, it's like when you drink, you will. If you're a good guy, you will die, right? So I, I just thought that was an interesting kind of uh, follow through. Um, anyways, I'm, I'm glad you liked the movie because I was kind of concerned. Like I was watching it again, going, hmm, that's a really 80s thing. I'm not sure if you would have been like. I mean, I take it with a grain of salt because I was raised and, and I was able to watch that stuff. But uh, for, for a person like you, I mean, you're just like, damn, this is a bad production value or something. It really wasn't. I didn't, I mean, the action scenes were kind of, you know, you know, mad. But then you got to remember, this is the same guy who did Mission Impossible. So, um, Wait, DePaul did Mission Impossible? Yeah, he did the first Mission Impossible. He also, did, he also did. I, all right, so, and, and this is a good point. Vince. I think that the reason why he tried, maybe one of the reasons why he pulled out of Chicago and did that horseback scene was because he was trying to, because you're right, he was trying to get away from the whole stereotypical gangster thing, but also because he did Scarface like with Al Pacino. Okay, yep, yep. So I, I think that the, you know, because if he wanted to make this so much more, so much, he wanted to differentiate it more, you know, from that, because I mean, that was a movie. Yeah. Um. He didn't really. I. I think that's also a, a, a possible reason why Al Capone didn't feature more in the movie. You know, because he already did a movie based oh. from the point of view of the gangster. Now he wanted to do one from the hero's perspective. So, um, that's that's one. Because I, I had no idea that this director also did Scarface. I mean, because that's a. I mean, this Scarface came out um. Four years before this movie. Really? It came out in 1986 or 85? Uh, all right, so The Untouchables came out in 87, oh, and uh, Scarface came out in 83. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh. Um, and, and then, and then uh, in 1996, this guy did Mission Impossible. <laughs> so so uh, it's like uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, only the Six Degrees of Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so what would you give this movie, Vince? You know what? I, I, I watched. I, I thought I would get it higher, but then I watched it again. And I was like, mm, okay. Like, as a, I'll say, it's three and a half out of five for me. But to be fair, I, I kind of in my mind had it as more of a four because I remember watching this when I was younger and was like, yeah, that's so cool. Like, I mean, maybe it's because I'm kind of getting old and, and seeing like, you know, they over overly fictionalized and, and took lots of license. And really, I, I have no problem with more gritty, realistic, uh, biopic kind of movies. So, so maybe I just kind of was, you know, looking at it through with the uh, rosy lenses or something. But uh, I, I'd still say it's a good movie. Three and a half out of five, man. <laughs> all right. So I would give this. All right. I would go ahead and give it a four out of five. It was a good movie. It's, it was, it's very rewatchable. It's not something that I maybe would go out and uh, deliberately rewatch. But if I saw this on TV, I'd like, oh yeah, this is a good movie. I would, I'd watch it again. Um, I. I really enjoy, uh, despite my qualms about, you know, jazz or whatever. I mean, whatever. You know, you can argue for or against this not having jazz in it, but the the soundtrack was really, really good in spots. And it's the the. It's the same the, 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 the uh, isn't it? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. All I know is that the tempo, like like, like when the the opening credits has a fantastic soundtrack. And, and then during all the action scenes, you can just—it's kind of like a—it um, was very John Williams-esque because whenever John Williams has a villain scene, he always has that one uh, theme theme. But where this one wasn't really a theme, but more had a had the same tempo, you know, like the, has had a beat to it. It was very good. 
Um, I, I actually might download the. I mean, there was obviously there were some parts where it were really weird, like where where they're sneaking around and you have like violins going in the background. But um, the, the the beat, the the times where there was like an up tempo kind of thing was, I really enjoyed it. So I would say four out of five for. Um, just because you, you might want something kind of nerdy about um, about uh, music. It, it was done by uh, I believe it was Ennio Marconi, Marconi, like the guy that does the good, the bad, the ugly, like the, the spaghetti westerns. I, I mean, I, I was it was it was it him? I think it was right. I can't remember, but um, it, it, like you could actually tell that there were instances because when we were earlier, why did they use jazz? Like I knew I, I was thinking back, like there were instances when I was watching the movie where I was like, music that they're playing is. Like there's a harmonica or like or something like that, right? And you're like a harmonica in the 1930s? I, I don't quite get it. Maybe I'm thinking more of Herbert Hoover, like Hooverville kind of things, like homeless kind of favela, like shantytown things. But I was like, I don't see any of that, and I don't know why the the, the, the kind of harmonica comes into the, into the discussion. So I, I just thought that there were some instances where the the music kind of was a little bit off, but. Um, but, but to be fair, the, the composer is a very well accomplished, uh, um, you know, score, guy who does scores. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, I really enjoyed it. Um, this is just something I thought about. Um, one thing that they didn't cover in this movie at all, and they, uh, it's it is kind of a really big miss. That now that I more the more I think about it, is that they did not talk about J. Edgar Hoover at all. And well, it was like very quickly because it's like, what are you gonna name the kid? Jay, John, John. Yeah, that was, that was literally the only mention of J. Edgar Hoover, right? And, and that kid doesn't exist in real, real life, right? So, um, <laughs> right, but um, uh, it's just that he was the one that was so obsessed with getting Capone and all the gangsters and stuff. I mean, that's how he made his name and rose up and became the first director of the FBI was from search getting going after these gangsters. Um, and he didn't make the movie at all, which is. It was very, it was very weird. Uh, but Absolutely. I don't know where he would, they really would have put him in. They would have had to make him a, you know, a bigger character if they were going to put him in at all. Okay, so this is a bit of a sidebar, and I, I don't know if this is going to include in the recording, but I, I think it's really important that you enlighten me on this because I understand J. Edgar Hoover. I'm not going to talk about the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I'm going to talk about just like him and J. Edgar Hoover in American culture, right? So. I understand that he was really behind the the kind of McCarthyism, like the McCarthyism, like the whole um, kind of Red Scare stuff. And you know, he also I don't know if it's hypocritically or not, but like he was also like a, a crossdresser and or something like that. Um, so like, what is the American sentiment behind? Him? Because when I heard that thing along with Jack Luther, I was thinking, wait, that's like saying, you know, I need my kid Kevin Spacey. Like, I mean, it's, it's it's something that if you knew it, if you knew the time, you probably wouldn't do it, right? So so what what's going on with the, with Jack Luther in, in this particular context? I'm not sure. All I know is the reason why he has such a big name in the in the United States is because of the fact that he was there forever. Like he he. He was started in the 1930s, and he was there until like 81 or something. Yeah. Uh, crazy. But, but just to longevity, and that's the only thing. It's like I, you know, that's the crazy thing. You're an American. You should know like all the kind of people in there. Like well, in yeah, that. part of the reason. All right, so you got to remember part of the reasons why when he was still around, the big. I mean, uh, most of the things you probably learned that were bad about him. At least in terms of like the cross and stuff, probably learned since he died. So I mean, uh, the the zeitgeist or whatever of of his his 
or his or his legacy, I guess, now it probably is more tainted than it would have been when he was alive. But he he wasn't well liked when he was alive. He was just powerful. Like <laughs> you always get the sense when you read stuff about him is that he had a lot of uh, like uh, maybe like a little black book of dirt on stayed in, in in power so long. I mean, he, I mean. In, in in some movies and stuff like that, he comes across as the shining example of searching for justice in America, and you know he's wearing a cape and it has a big you know, you know, S on his you know chest or whatever. But um, as with most things, I mean he was probably just as corrupt as the rest of them. It's just you don't know it. Um, and it's also it's also I mean a lot of the stuff you got to remember that I mean, we get so kind of bogged down in the fact that everything now today is a scandal and it appears on Twitter every you know. 30 yeah. seconds, you know, the whole woke thing. Back then it was newspapers, right? I mean, so if you found yeah. out something about it, you probably found out about it what, weeks and weeks after it happened or maybe months or you probably didn't know about it at all. Because <laughs> um, you got to remember the whole newspaper thing was, uh, I mean, we talk about divisive media today, but media back then was just as bad then because it was owned by like five guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so and chances are Hoover probably knew a lot of those guys and had dirt on him or something i don't know um i don't know he's a very interesting character but um i don't know it it was just weird that he didn't you know something in this movie Mm. uh well anyways i'm just i'm just i'm just curious because i think that um you know these kind of tangential references are good at contextualizing discussion right like it would make no sense if you said hey uh you know i'm, I'm gonna post that stuff on facebook like it, it's out of sync right but when you're talking about these sprinkles of like you know historic nuggets there to contextualize things i was just like i i never really thought that yeah was gonna be like seen as like the really good guy or like i knew the kid out from so it's a small little detail there well i mean at at that time it's re- that that scene there, Vince, is, is kind of weird. I mean, yes, J. Edgar Hoover would have been Elliot Ness's boss, right? But he wasn't like we're famous. Could not be your boss? Like it was even more weird. That's literally all that would have been would have been him naming it after his boss because at that point J. Edgar Hoover wasn't like, I mean, he, he didn't have a at that point he didn't have a building named after him, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he does now. Um, he you know he, he has a legend now you know, good or bad, and he has all this stuff, you know, floating around. Some of it's true, some of it's not true, and, you know, you know, we're going back through his papers, and, you know, it turns out he isn't, he wasn't a fantastic guy. You know, like, maybe now if you're, like, a big FBI fan or, like, a, <laughs> maybe you'd name your child after him now, uh, you know, he, 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 everyone knows who he is. But yeah. then, I mean, very few people probably would have known who J. Edgar Hoover was because, mm-hmm. I mean, he, like I said, the FBI didn't even exist. Um at that time, I think Jagger, who I think he was like um, like a deputy secretary or something. Um, he he held some political appointee position. I I think yeah. I'm wrong about that. But like he wasn't some like he wasn't uh, like the secretary of the treasury or something. I mean, it was just it was just some worker drone at that point. He was working to the point where he would eventually be appointed the first director of the FBI. So it's that that whole scene was just really weird. Um, probably, any, all right, yeah. All right, that was a it was a good movie. All right, Ricky, man, you gotta watch that movie. It's some good good action action scenes. You know, and he, all it needed was a car chase. Well, the car did. They had a horseback chase. They also had a car, yes. quasi car theme. Yes, um, it, 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 the, it had the horses. <laughs> they replaced the car chase with the horses. All right, 
Rockman's too. It's like, uh, hey, remember the Rockman? Uh, he, he's in the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it even had that would have actually that would have came across a lot better if it had been um, Sean Connery saying that line because um, I mean obviously it wouldn't made sense in the story, but it would have played off Bond because Bond has those all those one-liners. Exactly. All right. Anyway, so if you want to get in contact with us, uh, you can do so. Um, any number of places at the three casts on Twitter. Uh, I'm at MTWB. Vince is VWHUI. Ricky, who's not here, is Ricky underscore Williams one. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the three casts. You can also follow us. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there are other places. Oh, the three cast show at gmail.com is the email address. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting one, but I don't have the show notes here because I'm on Windows and Windows is terrible. <laughs> it's, it's just got. I, this is the second day in a row I've had to switch into Windows because I got this new microphone set up, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't work on Win- on Linux, and it's driving me absolutely. Uh, I'm just. I'm. De- I'm depressed. Is what I am. <laughs> uh, I don't know. problems. What is what I got? Anyways, uh, that is it for us this time. Uh, I have no clue what we're doing next. I think Ricky's the, has the next choice. Um, yep. Although didn't we just do Frozen? Oh, I, I did the Bond, so we did Frozen, then Bond, then we did this, so we're back to Ricky again. So we'll have to get Ricky to choose something. Alrighty, okay. Alright, talk to you next time. Alright, take care.